welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. chapter 14 this morning. I'm so excited to see you guys. I'm really excited about what God has just been revealing to me in this series that we've been in, and I'm excited to share with you what I've learned this week and as I've studied about this, and I hope this just brings some peace and some contentment to your hearts as we study about our Lord. You know, it's summertime, and it's get, or it's close to summertime, and it's getting time for people to start traveling. Has everybody got a vacation plan this year? A few of us? Okay. You guys, uh, I love you dearly, but... This is going to be difficult this morning. You guys aren't very awake. Anyway, well, every year, Jessica and I get to go somewhere, and it never fails. We'll inform people, we're going to be gone. We're going to go to Branson, or we're going to go to Gatlinburg and stuff like that. And people always ask the same question. I said, well, what are you going to do up there? And the answer is always the same for us as we go. Jessica's going to buy some new earrings. I'm going to buy a new pair of shoes, and we're going to play putt-putt golf. It doesn't matter where we're going. If we go to the beach, we're playing putt-putt golf. If we go to Branson, we're playing putt-putt golf. As a matter of fact, I didn't know there was anything else to do in Branson besides that. If we go to Gatlinburg, we're playing putt-putt golf. That's our idea of a good time. As a matter of fact, we have a hard time connecting to other social groups because everybody else wants to go eat at a nice, fancy restaurant and get together and do the socialite thing. And Jessica and I are like, yeah, we could get Chick-fil-A and play putt-putt. Like, that's our favorite thing to do. It doesn't matter where we go. And you would think that after talking to us and knowing this about us, you'd think we'd be good at putt-putt golf by now, right? wrong. <laughs> We're both abysmal at it, although Jessica, who is not here to defend herself, is slightly more abysmal at it than I am. I've got the uh, scorecards to prove it. I love putt-putt golf because you always come to that one hole and you're like, this one's going to be tough, right? It's like it's got the, you got to go uphill and then if you go too far, it's going to fall off the other side and if you don't hit it hard enough, it's going to come back. And, and so you line up on it and, and you, you, you think, okay, I don't want to hit it too far, so you just, you, you barely tap it. And the thing goes up there, and it, and, it, and it comes right back. And it rolls out there in the weeds, and you got to go get it. And so next time, you're like, well, this time I'm going to get it. So you can line up, and, you, and then you hit it about four holes over. Am I the only person who's ever done that? No? Okay, good. There's some of y'all, too. Well, because Jessica and I do this on about every other hole, we, we developed an unspoken rule called the do-over. Like, if, if you hit it from the tee, if you hit it out of the hole, or if it comes rolling back past you, you get a do-over. There's no penalty, just... Just pick up the ball and, and begin again. Just pick up the ball and try again. And that's interesting to me that we do that because Jessica and I are competing with each other. Like, it's not in my best interest to give her a do-over. It's in my best interest to count that and be like, well, the rules say that that's minus three or whatever. That, that's, that's the way that we should do it. But for some reason, when it's me and Jessica, there, there's no penalty. Just pick up the ball and, and try again. And the motivation for that is, is love. Jessica and I love each other, even though we always have a bet going that the, the one who loses is going to buy ice cream out of our joint bank account, which makes no sense. But that's the bet going on. One of us is going to lose and have to buy the ice cream or something like that. We will give each other do-overs because we love each other. Now, let me be clear. If you guys take me to putt-putt golf, you don't get the do-over rule. I'm, I'm going to count every time you practice swing, every time you sneeze, every time you stumble. You're getting a stroke counted because I'm trying to beat you. But when it comes to somebody that you love, well, that sounded bad. It sounds like I don't love y'all, doesn't it? When you come to somebody that you really love, that sounded bad too. 
When it comes to your wife, right, when it comes to your wife, there's a different kind of love that allows the do-over. And this, this motivation factor of love changes this. I, I love do-overs because I mess up a lot. And, and you know what? We, we worship a God of do-overs. And his motivation for letting us do a do-over is not because we deserve it. And it's not because it's not, it doesn't matter to him. It's, it's his love for us gives us this opportunity for do-overs. Well, we see it in the scriptures again and again and again and again that God gives his followers a do-over. You messed up, but it's, it's okay. Try it again. And, and today I want to look at the story of Peter. And I want to look at, at God giving Peter this, this amazing do-over because Peter was like most of us. He's imperfect. But this series, Oxymoronic Faith, we're, we're focusing on God's grace and how the way he treats us doesn't match our actions. So if you've got your Bibles with you, let, let's finish reading here or start reading here in Mark 14 verses 27 through 31. And Jesus said unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter, imagine that, but Peter said unto him, although all shall offend, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in the night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake even more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise, also said they all. Now, if you've spent a lot of time in church, you know how the story ends. You know what's fixing to happen. This, this particular passage takes place right after the betrayal of, or right before the betrayal of Judas, right after the Last Supper. Jesus has taken his disciples and he's taken them to go spend time in prayer and he's awaiting this group of armed men to come take him and take him to a mock trial and then take him to the cross. And in this, Jesus is praying and Jesus' last mission on earth before his death is to prepare his disciples for what's about to happen. He, he takes time to sit down with them and give them hope and give them grace. And this is what he tells them. He says, look, things are about to go down. And, and what's about to happen, you're not going to understand. And you're going to make some mistakes. You're going you're gonna to run from me. And you're going to deny me. You're going to abandon me. And Jesus knows that these disciples, who he loves so much, he knows the guilt that they will hold for that later on. That they'll make a mistake and then they'll, then, then they'll just immediately recognize, oh, I failed. And so he begins to prepare his disciples by telling them, I, I knew when I chose you. And I know now, I know what's about to happen. I know that you're about to abandon me. And Jesus begins to give them hope. So he offers them this promise. Even though they didn't all understand the resurrection, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. He says, after I am risen, we've got an appointment. I, I will meet you in Galilee. Even after you abandon me, even after you tell people you don't know me, after all of those things, I will meet you in Galilee. Cue Peter. I love Peter. Peter is talking to God. God has said, Peter, you're about to do this. And Peter goes, not me. I'm not going to mess up. You, 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 you're not going to catch me denying you. Jesus, even if it means I have to die, Jesus, I will follow you everywhere. You're not going to catch me denying you. That's one of those comments that aged really well, doesn't it? And I love Peter. You've got to admire Peter's passion, don't you? 
He, he's, he's out of all the disciples. He's like, uh-uh. There's nothing you could do to pull me away from you, Jesus. But Peter has a circumstantial passion. See, the way that Peter relates to Jesus and the way that Peter's passion plays out depends on what's around him. At some points in Peter's faith, Peter is incredibly strong. Peter walked on water, but when he saw the waves, when he saw what was around him, he began to sink. And here we see Peter's circumstantial passion. When Peter is sitting here listening to Jesus and he's surrounded in the world that he's in at that moment, he says, God, I will never fail you. Jesus, I would die for you. But when his circumstances change, so does his passion. And what I love about Peter, he's my favorite Bible character, because I'm Peter. That's, that's me. And, and you can't tell me sitting in here, that's not you as well. That, that we don't walk around with a, circum, a circumstantial passion. Our first take-home truth is this, is that our passion for Christ is easily influenced by the world around us. And I believe that's why the Bible makes it very clear to pay close attention to the world you allow yourself to be a part of. It's because our passion for Christ is easily influenced. And if you're sitting here thinking, that's me, you're not the only one. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, I never have my passion for Christ changed, you are the only one. The rest of us are sinners. None of us are perfect. And we know that Peter in this moment is being prideful, but why is this so easy for him at this moment? What about his circumstances at this moment makes it so easy for him to have passion? The passion that says, Jesus, I will die for you. Well, you notice two things about Peter that change between now and what's about to happen. Number one is his proximity to Christ. You notice that when Peter is the most passionate is when he's standing beside Jesus Christ. He's not passionate when Jesus is gone. It's when Jesus is right beside him. When he stands there with the faith and the assurance that this man who I'm close to is God and nothing can, can take him down. Peter had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Peter had seen Jesus tell people who couldn't walk to walk. When G Peter was close to Jesus, his passion was alive and well. Secondly, we see that Peter was surrounded by a group of like-minded people. In this moment, Peter has spent nothing but the past day with people who thought and believed the same way that he did. And Peter, because of this group of people around him, he has passion for Christ because the people around him have passion for Christ. We're going to do a little bit of math today. We've, we've got two equations that I want you to write down under your first take-home truth. This is the first one coming up on the screens. is that closeness with Christ plus a like-minded community equals passion. Think about that for a second. The equation for passion, closeness with Christ plus a like-minded community. You take either one of those away and the equation for passion for Christ falls apart. It's like two plus two equals, some of you guys are not very confident, two plus two equals four, very good. If you take away one of those twos, something plus two equals four. The only thing that makes that equal four is if you put another two in there. You can't put a one, you can't put a 238, it has to be two plus two equals four. And we see in the story of Peter that closest with Christ plus a like-minded community is the only thing that gives him passion. And Peter has passion plenty. Peter is, is, he's not lying. We tend to look at Peter and say, well, he must have lied. Peter is willing at this moment to die for Jesus. When Judas comes up and he kisses Jesus, he brings this armed mob with him to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and he begins to fight. He fights people with weapons for the sake 
of saving Jesus. In that moment, I think you could make an argument that Peter was willing to die away or die for that. But when his circumstances change, his passion and his confidence changes. And Jesus tells him that. He said, Peter, it's, I know you feel that way right now. But, but you need to know that here in, in the next few hours, that, that before this night is over, is that, that for three times you're not going to have that passion. Three times you're, you're going to fail me. Three times you will deny me. And I think what, Peter, what Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, it'll be okay. Peter, I understand what's about to happen. If you want to turn over, we'll, we'll look at the story of what Peter did. This is in John chapter 18. They come to arrest Jesus. And, and they take him away. And they take him to this mock trial where, where they're going to accuse him of all of these things. It's going to happen in the middle of the night, which is how you know it's shady. And, and they, they're, they're looking, at, uh, looking at Jesus and it becomes pretty clear that nothing Jesus says or nothing anybody says for Jesus, Jesus is going to the cross. They finally found a way to kill Jesus and they, they're gonna go ahead and carry it out. And, and there's nothing, nothing that can keep Jesus from this. Listen what Peter did. This is John chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus unto the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out the, that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought Peter in. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou not one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals. That's important. Remember that for later. A fire of coals. For it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. After the arrest, the disciples scatter. And that makes sense. You've got a group of men that are held together by Jesus and you take Jesus out of the equation and the disciples go off in every different direction. Mark records a story of one of, the, one of the men who was there running off into the woods in his underwear. Most people think that was Mark telling us he was there. And so all of these disciples go away because they don't want to be arrested. They realize if they can take Jesus, if they can take the man who can do miracles, they can take me. But not Peter. Peter is passionate and so Peter follows Jesus. Another gospel tells us that he follows Jesus at a distance, along with another disciple, probably John. And they come to watch the trial, and they come to see what happens to Jesus. And out of all of the things that Peter could run into, out of all the things that, that he could find as he was blending into the crowd, it was a servant girl. A servant girl asked him, he said, hey, don't, aren't you with the guy, haven't you followed, I've seen you with him, it's you and Jesus, y'all fit together, right? We're talking about Peter who fought armed guards with a sword. And this little girl asked him a question and he says, I, I, don't, I don't know him. No, I'm, I'm not with Jesus. What changed in the matter of the time it took Peter to walk from the garden, to walk to where Jesus was being tried? What changed in him that made his passion change? What circumstances changed? Well, before he was close to Christ and he was surrounded by people that were like-minded. But you notice in the gospel that now Peter was distant from Christ and he was isolated. This is our second equation up here on the screens. This is the equation for apathy. Distance from Christ 
plus isolation equals spiritual apathy. See, Peter was still following Jesus. Peter went farther than most of the disciples, but, but he followed at a distance. He wasn't beside Jesus. He wasn't willing to follow Jesus to death like he said he was. He followed behind him. And, and this is a picture of how many, many Christians follow Jesus Christ. We, we follow Jesus at a distance. Like, yeah, that Jesus thing, that's, that's kind of important to me. But our lives and our actions also say it's, it's kind of not important to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a Bible and I'll claim to be a Christian and I'll put verses on my social media, but when it, when it comes to really committing to Christ, like, uh, I, keep, I keep Jesus at a distance. I'm willing to go where he goes when it's easy, but when he goes to the cross, when he calls me to death, when he calls me to sacrifice, I'm not willing to go there with him. And because Peter was isolated, he failed Jesus. Our second take-home truth is this, is that followers of Christ need connection, not attendance. I've said that before, and if you don't write anything else down in here, write that down. Followers of Christ need connection, not attendance. See, Peter is in attendance, but he's not connected, and he's not in a like-minded group. And that's when we see Peter fall. This is the mighty Peter Peter who had performed miracles with the power of God. Peter who had walked on water. Peter who was in Jesus' innermost circle. And when you isolate him and you put distance in between him and Christ, he fails and he denies Christ. I think this is a warning to us and how we relate to Christ and the distance that we follow him at and how we relate to our church. If you are isolated from a community of believers, you will be more susceptible to fail. If you are isolated from another group of believers, your passion will probably fail you. And as we open this church back up, I just want to take this time to give you this challenge. Get involved. Come to Sunday school. Make time to be here on Wednesday nights. You need to be with believers, not at church for one hour a week. You need friends. You need people who will challenge you, who will call out sin in your life. You need people who will study the Bible with you and build you up and encourage you when you're down. And that's where passion for Christ and closeness from Christ often comes from. I would argue that it's very hard to be close to Christ when you're not in a church and you're not involved in a church where uh, God has designed for you to be built up and grown. Peter failed just like we do in those circumstances. And Peter repeats this habit three times. The first time Peter is asked, Peter just kind of says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What guy? I'm just, I'm cold. I'm just here by the fire. And he's asked again, Peter, don't I know you? Aren't you with Jesus? And, and Peter blatantly denies it. No, I am not. I don't know why people keep asking me that. And then it's recorded in Mark when he was asked the third time that he gets mad and angry and he's upset and he starts yelling and swearing and he says, I don't know that man, leave me alone. And this happens three times, three times before the rooster crows, his desperation rises. And after that last moment, Peter hears the rooster crow and he realizes that was, that was the third time I felt God. And then Luke 22 records something for us that none of the other gospels do. Luke 22 records for us that in that moment, Peter looks up and Jesus is looking at Peter. What a bone-chilling moment that Peter, big mouth Peter, said, Jesus, I'll never fall, fail, fail you. Three times denies Christ. He hears a rooster. 
He realizes that what Christ said was true and he looks up and Jesus is standing afar off and he's looking straight at Peter. What kind of look was that? What kind of look did Jesus give Peter? Because we all know that that uh, looks communicate things, right? When I was in college, we were taught that the best thing you can do for classroom discipline to make sure that your kids are minding is to develop the teacher look. You know the teacher look, don't you? Right? That's when you take a kid and instead of stopping class and saying, hey, I need you to behave and, you know, getting all this attention on this kid, you just, you know, kind of, okay, good, we're good. That's all you have to do. And that look says, uh, quit being a Neanderthal and get back involved in class. It communicates something. Most of you have somebody that you're close with. It's either your friend or your spouse or maybe your kids, right? And all you have to do to communicate when you're both thinking the same thing is you kind of look at each other and kind of smirk. like, And you both know what you're saying to each other. We think the same thing. Men, how many of your wives have the quit talking look that they give you? Like, you need to, you need to shut your mouth now. Anybody? Okay, thank you, Charles. Just me and Charles are the only ones that have that. Like, you can communicate with just a look. And so Jesus, Jesus looks at Peter, and I wonder what he's communicating. Is he saying, Peter, I told you so. How, how you argued with me. I'm God. You're going to argue with me. Look what you've done. Is it a look of condemnation? Is it a look that says, that Peter, you're a failure. I can't believe you would deny me now. Is it just a look that says, Peter, I see what you did. Don't think it was done in secret. I, I know what just happened. And to understand what Jesus is most likely saying to Peter, you need to look at how Jesus was handling his disciples over the last week and over the last days before his crucifixion. Last week we studied Judas. And Judas comes up to Jesus, betraying him with a kiss. And what does, what does Jesus say to Judas? He calls him friend. We see that as Jesus is preparing for his own crucifixion, the disciples are gathered around Jesus and he's preparing them and he's saying, look, you're gonna fail and it's gonna be okay. And so when you take all of the evidence of how Jesus is interacting with his disciples and giving them hope and observing what he does, we have to say that that Jesus didn't look at Peter out of anger. He, He didn't look at him He didn't look at him out of frustration. He didn't look at him so that Peter would know he was a failure. Jesus, facing his death, still to Peter, gives him a look of compassion. What he's saying is, Peter, it's okay. Peter, I I still love you, even though you failed. Peter, going away from this moment, is full of guilt. The Bible tells us that Peter goes away and he weeps. Peter has this amazing love for Christ. Peter would do anything for Jesus in most circumstances, but in a moment when his passion failed, he had failed Jesus. After making all of these big, boisterous claims, he let Jesus down at the moment when Jesus was the most vulnerable that he had ever seen him. And this was Peter's final interaction with Jesus before the crucifixion. Peter couldn't even go to the cross. Peter just denied Jesus, abandoned him, and walked away. And yet, the way that Jesus treated him did not meet the failures that he had committed. Have, have you ever felt like a failure before God? Like, like you promised God, God, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna do that again. I've got this one thing I fell at and I'm working so hard at it. And Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. I won't do that thing again. 
I won't treat people that way. I won't fall into that sin again. And, and then you let your guard down for a week and, and you get disconnected from community and you fail to take time to be close to Christ and all of a sudden you find yourself wrapped right back up in that sin. Some of us carry around this guilt of something we did years ago. Some failure that we have in our lives and, and we might say, I, I failed as a person. I failed as a follower of Christ and, and showing people the love of Christ. I failed as a parent or a spouse. I, I had this, this failure, and, and though we might not let everybody see it, we still carry around that guilt. We carry around the guilt of the times when we realize that people recognize us as Christians, and we had an opportunity to show somebody the love of Christ, but our actions said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. I don't act like one of his followers. Have you ever failed? Me too. Peter did as well. And for that reason, we can understand Peter's shame. We can understand what those days after the crucifixion must have been like for him, carrying around that heaviness and that guilt. I can't believe I let God down. I can't believe I failed that way. I had so much in front of me. I could have done such great things for God, but I couldn't even stand up to a servant girl and say that I was with Jesus. But three days later, things start to change. Later in the Gospels, a group of women go to the tomb and the different gospels record different names of women that tells me that it was probably a large group of women and just different names were recorded in different gospels and they're, they're going and they're trying to cope with their loss and they're going to the tomb with this hope that somebody will help them roll the rock out of the way so they can put spices on Jesus's body it's the equivalent of what we do when we lose someone we love and we walk out to the grave and we decorate and we put flowers on it. It's just it's a way of feeling close to somebody you love. I, I can honor and I can still love you even though you're not here. And this group of women walk out to Jesus' tomb trying to cope with the loss and, and trying to feel close to him. And as they approach the tomb, they see that the stone is already rolled away. We don't have to find someone to let us in. The stone is already moved. We can walk right in, and as they walk in, they find an empty tomb. No body, no remnants of a body, just, just an open place where Jesus isn't at. And, and they're wondering what's going on, but luckily, even though Jesus wasn't in the tomb, they found someone else. What can only be described as an angel is standing there waiting on them. And the angel says to them, remember, an angel is a messenger from God. This is from Mark 16. Listen to what the angel says to these women. He says, Christ is not here, he is risen. And then he goes on in Mark 16, 7, it says, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before them into Galilee. There shall ye see him. This is the same message that Jesus gave to his disciples. Jesus says, I'm about to go away. I'm about to die. I'm about to be at the end of my life. He says, but after I'm risen, I will meet you in Galilee. And here this angel tells these women, tell them that you found an empty tomb. Tell them that Jesus isn't here and tell them they have an appointment with Christ in Galilee, that he's gonna meet them there. But I love this. Why did the angel say, tell the disciples and Peter? Peter was a disciple. Why, why was it important for God to send a message through an angel to these women, to Peter, to meet Jesus in Galilee? See, something special is happening here. Peter gets this special invitation 
Peter who failed, Peter who walked around this guilt, Peter who had to have thought, I could never face Jesus. Even if Peter had heard of the resurrection, his thoughts would have been, I can't, I can't see him after, after the last thing that we did is I denied him and he looked at me. But the angel says, Peter, go to Galilee. And John 21 records the story of that particular meeting. As they get to Galilee, Peter says, I'm going fishing. No side of Jesus, I'm going fishing. And, and different historians believe different things. Some believe that this is Peter walking away from the faith and walking away from Christ. He's going back to his old job and his own life. And so he just says, I'm done with it. I'm not gonna mess with this anymore. And he goes back to fishing. But my problem with that theory is this, is that Peter's at the designated meeting place. Peter has traveled from where he was to go to where Jesus told him to be. So I don't, I don't think that one makes sense. Some people think that this was just normal, common sense. Peter was hungry, and so they're going fishing. But what I think with Peter is I think Peter was anxious, and he was hurt, and, and he didn't know what to do with himself, and he had all this nervous energy, and so he just needed to keep his mind busy and, and wait for Jesus to show up. And Peter goes out into his boat, and, and he fishes for a long time. He catches almost nothing. You have to think that had to compound his frustration. I failed Jesus and now I can't even catch fish. And this is what happens. This is John 21, verse five. Then Jesus saith unto them, and they didn't know who it was yet. Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, no. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. They cast therefore and now they were not able to draw it for the multitudes of fishes. Therefore the disciples whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, he girt his fishers coats unto him for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a, little, uh, in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they come to land, they saw a fire of coals. There's that phrasing again, there. And fish laid their own and bread. So the disciples are out fishing. Peter's out there. And Jesus, who is unknown to them at that moment, he calls out, he said, hey, having any luck? Any fishermen in here? Why do we always ask that? Having any luck? I don't know. We do. And they said, nope, hadn't caught nothing. I'm sure they were real Southern. Ain't no fish in this water, right? And they get this recommendation from the stranger on the shore. He said, try the other side of the boat. That whole six feet, that might make a difference. And the disciples cast it, and they pull in so many fish, they can't even pull the nets. And Peter realizes something. He says, that's Jesus. I've seen this act before. Jesus takes Peter back to a moment when Peter was an unbeliever. Luke records the story of Peter being found or being uh, called as a follower. And Peter had been out fishing all night, had caught nothing. And, and this man that, that Peter didn't know, Jesus walks up to him and he's teaching and he asks Peter, so can you take me out on your boat and let me teach from your boat? And he says to Peter, one more cast. Peter says, there ain't no fish in this water. One more cast. And that cast caught so many fish that it almost sank the boat. And Peter realizes the similarities between this moment and that moment. A Peter who feels alone and abandoned, called by Jesus. Try it my way and see what happens. 
Don't miss the connection here. Jesus is reaching out to Peter. Jesus is taking him back to a moment that he knew Peter would recognize it. And Peter desperately flings himself off the boat and he swims to shore while everybody else brings the fish in. And so there's a moment of time when Peter and Jesus are alone. Just the two of them. The risen Lord and the man who denied him. And the Bible tells us that when the disciples get there, they find Peter and Jesus around this fire of coals. Listen to this. The word fire is used 372 times in your Bible. The word used fire of coals, as it's stated here, that that word only appears twice in the entire Bible. Once is in this moment with Peter standing there alone with Jesus. Do you remember where the other one was? It was at Peter's denial. Jesus makes a point of taking Peter back to that moment. And Jesus offers Peter a do-over. Our last take-home truth is we serve a God of do-overs. We serve a God of do-overs. And after the disciples get there and they eat, Jesus, in this moment around this coal of fire, he has this conversation with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Jesus, you you know I love you. You know I have a passion for you. And, And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then he looks at Peter again. He says, Peter, do you love me? Like we just went here, Jesus. We just had this conversation. And Peter goes, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, the Bible tells us, Peter was hurt and he had a broken heart because he realized what Jesus was doing. He denied Jesus three times and now Jesus is giving him three opportunities to make it right. Jesus has given him these do-overs and he's asking the question a different way. He's not asking Peter, Peter, are you with me? He said, Peter, do you love me? Because you didn't love me when you were by that fire. People who love each other don't deny each other. Peter, here's your do-over. No penalty. Try again. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, with this broken heart and tears running down his face, says, Jesus, you know I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? And then Peter tells, or Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. But he goes a step farther. He makes sure Peter knows what he's getting into. He says, Peter, feeding my sheep means this. As you grow older, You've walked around all of your life doing what you want to do. As you grow older, you'll be led. And you'll be told what to wear. And you'll stretch out your arms. And what he tells Peter says, Peter, if you follow me, if you love me, Peter, your life is going to lead you to the same place that I went. Your life will lead you to a cross. This is the price of following me. And then he looks at Peter, the Peter who was scared of dying with Jesus. The Peter who denied God, the Peter who abandoned Jesus at his, at his least moment, the Peter who broke promises, and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, follow me. Here's your invitation. It's not over. You messed up, but that doesn't change everything. Begin again. Live if you want to make your way up here. When we look at the scriptures, we tend to look at Peter's faults. We know that Peter is a failure in so many ways. But Jesus looked past his faults and he said, Peter, I, I still love you. 
Peter, even though you messed up, I'm not done with you. And he gives Peter this amazing invitation. He says, Peter, I still have an opportunity for you. Peter, you're still useful. You're not useless. And as we look at our own lives, if you're like me, you carry around some faults. You carry around some heaviness. You carry around some mistakes. But here, here's what Jesus Christ says to us. He says, try again. Here's your do-over. No penalty. Just do it right this time. And every last one of us, we have the opportunity this morning to just leave our guilt and our shame and our sin here. And if you've never come to know Christ, now's the time. Leave your failures, leave your mistakes, leave them here. Please stay.